please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. And while you're making your way to Romans chapter 5, I want to tell you about an experience that I had when I was just a little boy. I was probably 9 or 10 years of age, and I've always been a goal-oriented person. And even as a little boy, I had goals that were very important to me. And so as a as a little boy, I set this goal before me. It, it was a big goal. It was a lofty goal. This wasn't one of those small potatoes kind of goals. This was, this was a biggie. This is something that if you achieve this goal, it's something that you could be really, really proud of. And so my buddy Richie Connors and I decided... To participate in this goal together, I, I went over to Richie's house and I said, Richie, I, I want you to come back to my place on Saturday morning, early, early in the morning. We're going to get up and we're going to dig a hole. That was the goal. You remember what kind of goal it was? It was a big goal. It was a lofty goal. It was a goal that if you accomplished it, it would be a, a huge deal. And so Richie came over to my house on that Saturday morning and I need to remind you about something. This wasn't your everyday run-of-the-mill kind of a hole. Oh, no. Richie Connors and I, we set out to dig a hole to China. Now you know. And I, I know I could tell by the looks in some of your faces that some of the men, when they were boys, they did the same thing. It's kind of this rite of passage to to dig a hole to China. And so we got up on that Saturday morning and we began the process. And I have to tell you, with great intentions, we started to dig. And we dug. And we dug. And I think it was about, oh, about an hour into the process. We maybe got about a foot, maybe a foot and a half. And man, we started to get tired. And I looked at Richie and I said, you know what, Richie? I don't think we're going to make it today. And I don't quite remember how he responded, but I'm pretty sure it was something like this. I don't think we're ever going to make it to China. And so we gave up on our goal. At least we had to try another day. Well, sometimes I believe the attitude that Richie Connors and I had toward digging the hole to China is strangely similar to the approach that you and I have in the Christian life. Sometimes the attitude we have in the Christian life goes something like this. We, we set out on January 1 to read the Bible through in a year. And what happens? You do great until you get to Leviticus. And then your plan gets short-circuited. Or you endeavor to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with your friends or your family members this year who aren't Christians. Or you set out to memorize some scripture. Maybe it's a few verses. Maybe it's a large set of verses. Maybe it's even an entire book. Maybe you set out to re- read and memorize the, the book of 1 John or the book of Colossians. But for whatever reason in the Christian life, so many times we run into the brick wall, like Richie Connors and I ran into a brick wall when it came to digging the hole. Well, last week, we began to dig into Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And after hearing some of your feedback, I do get feedback, you know. Some of it is very encouraging, and some of it is kind of like, well, I guess I need to preach that sermon over again. I have concluded, based on the feedback I got from last week, that we need to continue to dig into this passage. I must tell you that the passage for next week, or rather today, was already complete, is already planned. I was ready to preach it, and early in the week after this feedback, and I really, I greatly appreciate this feedback, and I realize that, that you and I need, need to, to do some more uh, digging together. Now this year at Christ Fellowship, our theme, as you know, is digging deeper, growing stronger. And so to go back to this passage in Romans chapter 5 seems to make perfect sense to me. 
I would like to read the passage together, and, and what we're going to do, our strategy today, is I want to review some of the, the content that we looked at last week. And one of the reasons for that is, as you remember, Luther says, we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again because we keep forgetting the gospel. And as I look out on the sea of faces, I see that many of you were not here last week. And so it will not only be a good review for those of you that were here, it will uh, be a good uh, uh, summary for those of you that weren't able to join us. I want to have you look with me at Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 6, 7, and 8. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we never want to uh, get tired of hearing those four words. Christ died for us. Lord, as we review the gospel, as we meditate upon the gospel, as we sing about the gospel, as we study the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel, uh, we never want to grow weary of these four words, Christ died for us. Thank you for the songs that we have already uh, sung to you that remind us of the power of the gospel, that remind us that Jesus died for us. Even though we are weak, even though we are ungodly, even though we are sinners and are sinners, that Christ died for us. Now, as we dig deeper into this beautiful section of Scripture, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in our midst, that you would be our instructor that you would help us to understand your word, that we would apply it to our lives. And as I look out on this group today, Lord, I realize there are many, many needs. Some of those needs are known. Some of those needs are unknown. And so I pray that the word of God would apply directly to every need in this room today. Encourage us, build us up. We need it so much during these dark days. Lord, I pray that we would, once again, turn our attention to your word. For you are our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are our Savior. And we're so excited to be here in this place today. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Last week, you remember that what we did is we, we distinguished between the bad news and the good news. And I went to great lengths to, to make the case for offering the bad news first when you share the gospel. People need to understand where they stand apart from grace. And here's, the, what, here's what we saw last week. The bad news is, is simply this, as verses 6 through 8 indicate, we are weak. That word weak or translated as helpless in the Christian Standard Bible or powerless in the NIV means this, that every person apart from grace, it doesn't matter how good looking you are, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter what kind of job you have or don't have, it doesn't matter what kind of family you come from, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, we know this, every person apart from grace is spiritually impotent. You say, Pastor, are you saying that as an unconverted person, I had no power I'm saying that's exactly what the Word of God says. We are called weak. We were spiritually dead, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. Those are things that many people don't like to hear. You have absolutely no power. You have absolutely no inclination. You have absolutely no desire for God. That is the, the gravity of what it means to be spiritually weak. But we also learn that we are spiritual slaves. Now if you 
have been watching the news over the last several weeks, you know that the matter of slavery has come to the forefront of American culture. And there are some things that we need to remember about slavery, and I I think we can all agree together that, that slavery is one of the most horrible black eyes on American history. It is embarrassing. It is shocking. It was ungodly. It was a horrible, horrible thing. But newsflash, the days of slavery in American culture are over. Are they not? Praise the Lord for that. But there is something that remains. Spiritual slavery remains. Jesus said it this way, anyone who commits sin is a what? Is a slave to sin. You say that word offends me. Well, guess what? If you're not a Christian here, you need to understand that you are weak, that you are a sinner, and that anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Indeed, you are powerless before Almighty God. You are are absolutely unable to lift a finger in God's direction. John chapter 6 verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's called a universal negative. No one can come to me unless, that is, unless a necessary condition is fulfilled. Unless he who sent me, Jesus said, draws him. Make no mistake. And this is, you talk about unpopular. Wow. God does not draw every person. You know that? So if you're a Christian today, you should say, wow. Instead of, I've talked to people over the years who get infuriated at the sentence I just uttered, that God doesn't draw every person. But you should be delighted. If you're a Christian, you should say, why would God draw me? Me, a person who was weak, a person who was impotent, a person who couldn't lift a finger in the direction of God. Why would God draw me. Kyle, I love the way, I don't know if you even realized you did it. I think you did. But when you were, were citing from uh, John Newton's hymn, who saved a wretch like me. It wasn't quite that emphasized, but it was emphasized. And I really like it, right? Do you realize that some have taken probably the most popular hymn in American history, at least, they have taken that word wretch out? They don't like that word. No one likes to be considered a wretch, but we need to remember that apart from grace, we are slaves. Jesus said it like this in John 6, verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits what? Nothing. Luther responded to that verse. He said, nothing is not a little something. You know what an American evangelicalism We've turned nothing into a little something. We want our 1%. We'll give God 99%, but we want the 1%. But you remember what Luther said, nothing is not a little something. And so every creature is weak. Also, we saw that every creature is ungodly. That word ungodly means a person who is profane, a person who is impious, a person who is ungodly holy. And then we learned in verse 8 that every creature is a sinner. The word in the Greek literally means a person who has disobeyed any of God's commandments or neglected any duties that God requires of us. Every single person in this room, every baby born in this world is born a sinner. That's the bad news, that we are weak, ungodly, that we are sinners, but the good news that we focused on is summarized, as I mentioned in our prayer, that Christ died for sinners. Think about that just for a second. I'm going to have you meditate that on, on that sentence throughout this message. Christ died for sinners. Can you believe that? 
I, I wish you could see what I see because so many of you have, have big smiles on your face because you know that I don't deserve it. You know that you don't deserve it. You know that, that no one deserves it. Now, here's what Paul does, and I, I want to show you a photograph of my Bible. I don't do this often, but I have this idea. You might not be able to see it real well, but in verse 6, I want you to see the emphasis here. In verse 6, Paul says that Christ died for the ungodly. And then if you move forward in verse 8, you see I've drawn a line in verse 6 to verse 8 where Paul continues. He says that not only does Christ die for the ungodly, Christ dies for us. I mentioned last week that Paul pens this beautiful beautiful word. And as important as the statement that Christ died for us, that Christ died for sinners and Christ died for the ungodly, as important as that is, we don't want to miss the beautiful, lovely, incredible, encouraging word at the the beginning of verse 8. It's a word that should be like, like music in your ears. Pick your favorite music, classical music, rock music, country music. Yes, it is music. I've been told. You pick your favorite music. This word at the beginning of verse 8 should be like music in your ears. It should be a word that also brings a tear to your eye. It's a word that should prompt deep-seated humility. It's a word that should bring you to your knees in holy submission to God. Do you remember what the word is? It's the word the little tiny word, but. The word but. The word but, you remember, marks a contrast between the bad news and the good news. It's a word, I'll put it like this, that denotes hope for the hopeless. It's a word that that gives the weak, the ungodly, the sinful, a glimmer, a ray of of hope, There is light at the end of the tunnel. For if you understand and embrace the plight of the weak, the ungodly, and the sinner, the word but might possibly be one of the most beautiful words in all of the scripture. The word but. Why? Because I deserve to go to hell. Because you deserve to go to hell. We deserve hell eternal judgment. Each one of us deserves to be condemned. As we move deeper into the heart of this passage, I have titled the message, Christ died for us. Look again at verse 8. But God shows or demonstrates his, his agape, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, There it is again. Christ died for us. Before we get our shovels out, and I hope you'll do this in your your collective minds this morning, I want to ask you to take a moment to, to commit the next few minutes to God. And I want you to pray a simple prayer. And this is a prayer that I believe can have life changing implications. And this prayer. I haven't mentioned this to Jason yet, but he will recognize these lyrics. These are lyrics from a song, a sovereign grace song. And so I would ask you to pray this prayer. These would even be worth jotting down. Would you pray something like this? Heavenly Father, please help me to explore the depths of your grace. The grace that came to me at at such a cost. Help me to comprehend your boundless love that conquered my boundless sin. One more time. Help me to comprehend your boundless love that conquered my boundless sin. Oh God, take me deeper, deeper, deeper into the glories of Calvary. I Trust that you will pray that prayer throughout the remainder of your Christian journey. That that you will ask God, God, take me deeper in grace. Because it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. You need to recognize that there's always more to learn. 
I remember, I think I've told you this story, but years and years ago, I went to a, a conference. It's a conference that I, I needed desperately in my life. And as this group of pastors came together to explore several themes of the Christian life and, and Christian ministry, I looked over and I saw a man who I recognized. His name is Dr. Willard Aldrich, and he was one of my professors at Multnomah University, and I'll never forget the thought that ran through my mind as I considered this man who was at least 90 years old. I thought to myself, I wonder why Dr. Willard's here. I literally thought that. I wonder why Dr. Willard's here. And then it struck me that even Dr. Willard had, had more to learn. That even as a, a seasoned saint, a, a man with a, a wealth of experience, in historic Christianity and living the Christian life, he had more that he needed to learn. I pray that that would be our prayer as we explore the depths of grace together. I want to look at one other area of review, and I trust this will come of some encouragement, especially to those of you who were not here last week. Last week, we looked at seven facts concerning the death of Christ. Seven facts concerning the death of Christ. First of all, we said that Jesus' death was a real death. It was a real death. The Greek word translated uh, died in verse 8 is a word that is, simply means to pass from physical life and lose all bodily attributes and functions necessary to sustain life. What would you tell a young child about the Lord Jesus Christ what happened to Jesus when he breathed his last? The man Jesus was, someone yell it out, dead. This was not a shell game. This was not a charade. This was not a magic trick. The swoon theory is a joke, right? Jesus Christ, the man, died. And how long was he dead? He was dead for three days. And so it was a real death. Second, we saw that it was a timely death. It was a timely death. Verse 6 says that while we were still weak, while we were still powerless, while we were still impotent, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We distinguish between the two Greek words translated loosely as time. The first Greek, Greek word translated as time I have on my wrist. It's a chrono, chronograph. If you have a wrist, wrist watch, you know what it is to have a, a chronograph, a, a, a watch that has time. 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. You know what chronograph means when men, when your wife says, we need to be at the restaurant at 5 o'clock. Ladies, what does that mean? Not 5.30, right? Not 5.15. It means you're there at 5 o'clock. That's the chronos or chronograph. That's not the word that Paul uses in this particular passage. It's a Greek word translated as chiron. It means opportune time. And so we looked at Galatians 4 that says, when the fullness of time had come, not clock time, but time in God's redemptive plan. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It was a timely death. Number three, we saw that it, it was a remarkable death. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Fourth, we saw that it was a prophesied death. The Old Testament foretold the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself, you remember, he said several times to the disciples that he would die. Number five, we learn that it is a glorious death. A glorious death. Number six, we saw that it is a, a death that puts the love of God on center stage. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's where I want to zero in. Number seven. Number seven. We also learn that it was an effectual death. An effectual death. And so I want to have you take your shovels with me. 
And we want to, to literally dig deeper and grow stronger together. I want to drill down and, and, and dig deeply into the soil of God's word so that you and I as the people of God can be encouraged. Let me just, just for fun, just to make sure I'm not alone. How many of you could use some encouragement like right now? Raise your hand. And those of you that are not raising your hands, you're like everything's good. Pandemic, you know, economy, political situation, racism, mean people, division, everything's cool. <laughs> I hope I'm not the only one, but I, I'm ready to move along. Thank you very much. Right? Would you hold your finger in Romans? And I was going to save this until the end, but I, I want to give it to you right now because it's so important. Turn with me to the book of, of Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42. At the end of Psalm chapter 42, the, the psalmist cries out, verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Now, what's the psalmist doing here? He's, sounds kind of weird, he's, he's talking to himself. Anyone talk to yourself? Do you ever do that? You talk to yourself? Usually it looks something like this. How can you be so stupid? You were supposed to be there at 5.30. Or, no, it was 5. See, I forgot. <laughs> How can you be so obtuse? How can you be so filled with pride? So you talk to yourself. Well, here, the psalmist is talking to himself. He says, why are you cast down, Dave? Why are you cast down, Kathy? Why are you cast down, Robert? Why are you cast down, Joe? Why are you cast down, Aaron? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? He continues to talk to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, you know when you see repeats in the scripture, it's something that's worth paying extra close attention to Psalm 43 verse 5 why are you cast down oh my soul what's the psalmist doing here he's talking to himself why are you cast down oh my soul and why are you in turmoil within me hope in God for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God that's our purpose this morning to hope in God how do we do it we would do it by asking two questions. Number one, what was the purpose of Christ's death on the cross? What was the purpose of Christ's death on the cross? For those of you who were not here last week, we actually looked at the next two questions, but I, I brushed over them quickly. And one friend said, and my friend who said this to me is here today, and I don't say this as a criticism, I say it actually as a thanks, right? He said to me, when we walk through that section of scripture, he says, and I quote, I kind of felt ripped off. And I thought, oh boy, sermon number two. I mean, I, literally when he said that, I went, I'm going back to the drawing board, sermon number two. So I didn't take it as a criticism, I took it as, it's time to get the shovel out. Right? We just can't list these, these things off without doing more detailed legwork. And so what was the purpose of Christ's death? Number one, to bring people to God. Why did Jesus die? To bring people to God. Hold your finger in Romans 5 and go over to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I hear some Bibles turning and... I love the sound of the, the pages turning, by the way, while you're turning and making your way to Hebrews. Do you know one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I think it's important to pay attention, it helps you to engage, it helps you to remember, it helps you to make sure that I'm on the right track and expositing God's word accurately. When I was a youth pastor, I used to do this all the time. I used to misquote a verse, Right? And the students that didn't have their Bibles open, they, I mean, I could have been Joseph Smith and they would have had no idea. I, I could have been Muhammad, right? I could have been David Koresh. No idea. Just, we just keep drinking the Kool-Aid, right? 
So we are accountable to one another. So let me encourage you to follow closely in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to do what? To serve the living God. You see, before the cross, we have seen that we were weak and ungodly, that we were, we were sinners, right? We continue to be sinners. But before the cross, we were outsiders. Before the cross, we were renegades. Before the cross, we opposed God. Before the cross, we shook our fist in the face of God. And I, I can just think of conversations that I've had that go something like this. No, 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 you don't understand. I was a good person. I was one of those good people. I got raised in a Christian home. I was a good little girl. I was a good little boy. You know what the biblical answer is? No, you weren't. You were weak. You were ungodly. You were sinful. You were a renegade. You opposed the living God. You were like a poisonous snake, Jonathan Edwards says, spitting poison in the direction of a holy God. Given the opportunity, you would kill God. Every one of us, given the opportunity as unconverted people, we would have killed God. Before the cross, we simply did not fear God. We freely turned away from him. Listen to Jeremiah thirty-two forty. I will make, God says, with them an everlasting covenant that I, God, will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Now, why did God need to put fear into the hearts of his people Israel? Why? Because they did not fear him. They did not love him. They were not devoted to him. They were weak. They were ungodly. They were sinful. The first reason that Jesus died is to bring people to God. Amen? Number two, the second purpose, he died to save people from their sin. Once again, hold your finger in Romans 5 and go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. I think I've referred to this last week as my favorite Christmas passage. Verse 21 says, She, and in the context we're referring to the Virgin Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua, for he will save, mark that word, save his people from their sins. Who was that son? Who was that babe in the manger? Well, the son, as you well know, was the sinless savior. The son was fully God and fully man. The son saved people, as this passage says, from their sins sins. Look once again at Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. If you have a pen, I would encourage you to likely highlight the whole verse, but to pay close, close attention to the word save. That word save comes from a Greek word. It's the, it's the Greek word sozo, sozo. And it means this, to deliver from sin and punishment and judgment. It means to save from evil. When I was a, a youth pastor, I received an invitation in Lacey, Washington to, to join the Rotary Club. I was, just, I was like 25 years of age and a gentleman approached me and asked if I wanted to join the Rotary Club. And I did that and made some, some really good friendships in the Rotary Club. But one of the guys in the Rotary Club was a friend of mine by the name of Ken. And Ken liked to fancy himself as an atheist. 
And he liked to give Christians a hard time. Great guy, gregarious guy. And he came up to me one day and he said, Hey, hey, pastor, have you saved anyone lately? And if you're a Seinfeld fan, you'll know what I mean when I said I had one of those George Costanza moments, right? Where I came up with a great response two days later driving down the road, right? I see the Seinfeld fans like, oh, oh, I should have, right? If he ever said that to me again, I would say this. Saved from what? Or even better than that, saved from whom? Matthew tells us that Jesus saved us from our sins, but that's not the only thing that he saved us from. Listen to how this word sozo, translated saves, appears in a few other passages in the New Testament. Luke chapter 18, verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Luke 19, verse 10, for the, you know this one very well, for the Son of Man came to seek and save whom? The lost. He came to seek, uh, seek and save the lost. John 3, 17, we all know John 3, 16, right? But John 3, 17. Some of you memorized it along with verse 16 when you were a child. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be what? Saved through him. John 5, 34. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.46 and 47, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive food. This is a Baptist passage. Food with glad and generous hearts. Man, tough crowd. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You're with me. And in Romans chapter 10, we'll get there in 2023, maybe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So my friend says to me, have you saved anyone lately? Well, we know that a human being doesn't have the power to save anyone. But what was more important, what, what was underneath the surface of his question, who are we being saved by and what are we being saved from? Saved from what? Next week we're going to look at this in greater detail in Romans chapter 5 verse 9. If you'd look at it just for a moment. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood. I hope that sounds familiar to you because we, we've been studying this in great detail in chapter 5 and also in chapter 3. We have been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him, namely Jesus, from the wrath of God. And so we are saved from the wrath of God. We'll look at that in greater detail next week. But there's another question I've already indicated to you with my indicating this through my story from Ken. Saved from whom? This is the one that people don't want to touch. This is the one that when Rob Bell published Love Wins, I read the whole thing on a plane from Seattle to Okinawa, Japan. It is a horrible, horrible, God-dishonoring book. And he makes light of the notion of the saved, right? We are not only saved from the wrath of God, but listen carefully, we are saved from God. To be saved means to be saved from God and his holy wrath. 
We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from God. And all this is made possible because of those four amazing and beautiful words. Christ died for us. There's a third purpose. By the way, we're going to look at five purposes. There's many more. And dare I say that we're scratching the surface here. I can just hear it. I, we're, we're getting ripped off again, right? We might go for round three. We'll see what happens. Number three, a third purpose, to deliver people from the domain of darkness. You see, before the cross, you and I lived in another kingdom. If you're not a Christian today, you live, Scripture says, in the kingdom of darkness. Your ruler is Diabolos, Satan. Before the cross, we love the darkness. We lived for the darkness. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us, that is the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We now live, if you're a Christian, we now live in a new realm. We now have a new ruler. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. This is a, an unbelievable reality. Number four, related to number three, we have been delivered from this present evil age. John Piper says, until we waken to our darkened spiritual condition, we live in sync with the present evil age and the ruler of it. And so Ephesians 2, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Galatians 1, verses 3 and 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Do you remember Psalm 42 and Psalm 43? The psalmist cried out, hope in God. How can we not hope in God when we learn that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, that we have been delivered from this present evil age? I think I mentioned that last week. Sometimes you just have to shut the television off. Sometimes you just need to put the newspaper down. I'm all for being informed. I'm all for being in tune to culture. But sometimes we just need to turn it off, put the newspaper down, and remember our position in Christ and to hope in God. Number five. And this one might sound strange to your Protestant ears. And some of you might think it sounds strange coming from my mouth, giving my great love of the Protestant Reformation. But the fifth purpose of the cross is to create people who have a passion to do good works. I mean, those are words that would make a Protestant put up his dukes, right? To, to have a passion for people who love to do good works? Well, that statement should pose no problem for you whatsoever. Yes, we have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes, it is true. A thousand times, a thousand times, a thousand times, over and over and over, works will never save us. Works will never save us. The reformers said it like this, we are justified by faith alone. But faith is never alone. We are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. The Bible not only affirms the importance of good works. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 15, This is to my Father's glory, that they bear much fruit, showing themselves or proving themselves to be my disciples. Here's really what Jesus is, is saying. No fruit, no salvation. That is unpopular in the church in the West. To say no fruit, no salvation. This is to my Father's glory that they bear much fruit, showing themselves to be my disciples. And so the Bible not only affirms the importance of good works, the Bible affirms the indispensability of good works. Listen to Titus chapter 2. Paul says, The grace of God has appeared. Aren't you glad? 
the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Think Portland. Think Seattle. Think Chaz or Chap or whatever they call themselves. Think New York City. Think Atlanta. Think Denver. Think Los Angeles. Cities all around America and not just in America but around the world that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. Do you like the word zealous? I love the word zealous. Has anyone ever called you a zealot? Call me a zealot, right? It sounds like a put down. Man, thank you for the compliment. I hope someone calls you a zealot, but I didn't finish this, this sentence. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for Good works. Can you say that as a Protestant? I would say you not only can say it as a Protestant, you must say it. It is required for you and I to say that as Protestants. The term translated as zealous means enthusiastic. That's why you should love it when someone says, Ah, you're one of those religious zealots. Yes, I am. Thank you very much. It means someone who is fervent, even a militant proponent of something. You see, Jesus came so that we would have a passion, so that we would be zealous to do good works. Do you know that some of the greatest good works in our country have come from the hands of godly women and godly men? Some of the greatest hospitals ever built, some of the greatest organizations ever built, some of the greatest structures ever erected, some of the greatest movements ever set in place happened because godly men and women had a passion for good works. I trust that you do as well. Jesus died to create a people who have a passion to do good works for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Some of you are aware that every time Bach finished a piece of music, he would write at the, the bottom of his piece, S-D-G, Latin for soli deo glory. To God alone be the glory. I want to conclude by asking a second question. And this is a question that we proposed last week, but I ran through them quickly. So here we, we're going to get out the shovel again. What did Christ's death actually accomplish? Number one, we'll go fairly quickly. Number one, we are reconciled to God. This is one of the critical realities that we'll spend time with a greater amount of time next week, namely that we have been reconciled to God. Look at verse 10, just kind of a preview for next week. For if while we were enemies, does that sound like weak, ungodly, sinful? If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, that is God the Father, by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be, there's the word again, saved by his life. Reconciliation. The definition is this, to become restored to a favorable, friendly relationship with another, and in this case God, after a presumed wrong or sin. We have moved from the arena of being hostile to God to being invited to his banqueting table. We have moved from the arena or the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are now reconciled to God and nothing can ever change that. We'll see that in Romans chapter 8. Number two, we are forgiven and justified. That is to say, all our sins, past, present, and future. The sins that you committed in high school, the sins that you committed in college, the sins that you committed as a single man or woman, the sins that you committed before you became a Christian are 
all under the blood. The sins that you will commit today are all under the blood. The sins that you will commit tomorrow and next year and the following, if should, if should, the, should the Lord tarry, will be forgiven. They are already forgiven. And I want to have you look with me at several passages, and this is where I would invite your participation. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 103. Psalm chapter 103. And I want to sink deeply into your, your heart and soul the, the power and the passion of the gospel as we read quickly these selected verses. Psalm chapter 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Go over to Isaiah chapter 38. And these would be great passages to to uh, highlight and to make reference of in the days to come. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Move forward in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. You say, you're not kidding. We're going to hit these quick. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The book of Micah. Chapter 7, verse 19. Let me just read it. You don't need to struggle to get there. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. Let me put it all together. He separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. He hides his sin behind his back. He remembers our sin no more. He buries our sin into the deepest of oceans, we are forgiven, we are justified as God's people. The third purpose, we are made clean and holy, all because of the death of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 says, he is now reconciled in his body by flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. One author says, one of the greatest sources of joy and endurance for the Christian is knowing that in the imperfection of our progress, we have already been perfected. And that is owing to the suffering and death of Christ. Let me prove what this author is saying. Hebrews 10:14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, we don't have the time to, to get into the, 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 the detail of this teaching, but this is vitally important. Ask yourself this question. Have I been sanctified or am I being sanctified? And some of you know that I love to kind of play this game with things. Hold, hold, put that on the back burner. Is the kingdom of God now or is the kingdom of God in the future? What's the answer to that question? Yes. It's very important. You don't say just in the future. That would tell me about your theology. That is not what the Bible teaches. The kingdom of God is now and in the future. How about this? You're a, have you received your adoption as sons? Is all that present now or in the future? Yes. I'm giving you a hint here. Have you been sanctified or are you being sanctified? The answer is yes. I'm convinced that many times in the local church, we only believe half of that. We believe that we are being sanctified. And that is true. We are being sanctified. But we have been perfected. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews says. So in one verse, we're told that all the people of God have been sanctified. If you want to make a note of this, that's what theologians have coined as definitive sanctification. We have been 
sanctified. It's a done deal. But there is also a category, and these are all categories that theologians have coined, and rightly so. They call it progressive sanctification. We have been sanctified, but we are being sanctified. How many of you are working on that right now? How many of you are having a hard time? I'm the only one. Okay, there's a few. Yeah, you're having, like, whoa, this is really hard. Like, I'm ready for glorification. Anyone ready for glorification? Because when you are glorified, the sanctification process has run its course. And guess what? When we get to Romans chapter 8, we're going to learn this. If you are a Christian, it is guaranteed that you will be glorified. Not one of God's elect will fail to become glorified. And all this is because of four words. Christ died for us. Number four. I just made reference to this, and that is that we are adopted into God's family. John chapter 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. One of the great mysteries in children's ministry is why children are not encouraged to memorize verse 13 along with verse 12. Because if you read verse 12 in isolation, it almost sounds like you've got the power to do it on your own. You have the right to become children of God. But look at how John completes it. Who were born, that is regenerated, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of the songs as I was studying this passage that came to my mind is a song that I sang as a boy. Some of you remember it. I think... I think it's a Gaither song. I can't remember. One of my favorite groups. But it's a great song. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You remember that one? I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. Took me 30 years to figure out what that sod was. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And it's all because Christ died for us. Fifth and finally, but not comprehensively, we have received eternal life. John chapter 17, verse 3, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's speaking to the Father. This is eternal life. What's eternal life? Some people say it like this. It means going to heaven. No, no, no. Heaven's a fringe benefit. Heaven's a fringe benefit. It's a great fringe benefit, right? This is eternal life, Jesus prays, that they may know you experientially in the heart and in the head. They may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Therefore, each person needs to respond to the offer of eternal life. You need to admit that you are weak and ungodly and sinful You need to acknowledge that you have failed to glorify God as you ought. You have failed to be satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ Jesus. That as of this moment, you are under his wrath for refusing to regard him as trustworthy. So admit that you're a sinner. Second, acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And finally, ask Jesus to forgive all your sins. You turn from your sins, you repent, you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, God, I want to know you, like Jesus prayed in John 17, 3. God, I want you to be the captain of my ship. I want you to be my savior, Jesus. I want you to be my Lord. You're in charge. You're the new boss. And so Paul says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here it is again, you will be saved. And the only reason we can receive eternal life, and we say it together, is that Christ died for us. Think about that. Think about that short sentence, that Christ died for us. I've probably said it 10 times. I have no idea. One of the children here probably is, right? right I used to do that when I was a little kid. I'd, I'd write down how many times the pastor said God. I'd write how many times the pastor said, and in conclusion... It's like 40 times usually, right? Christ died 
for us, the great reality of Christ's death may be one of the most well-known yet underappreciated facts in all of human history. The cross of Jesus is the diamond of redemptive history. And this morning, we, we've only looked at two angles of that diamond. We've looked at the purpose of Christ's death, and we've looked at the accomplishments of Christ's death. And I want to leave you with seven basic points of application. These are encouraging points to take with you out the door to strengthen you this week. Number one, and these will be quick. Number one, stop. Stop. Stop and consider where you would be without the cross. Can you imagine? Where would I be without the cross? I would be lost. I would be hopeless. I would be helpless. I would be an enemy of God. I would be under the wrath of God. I would go to hell when I die. Consider where you would be without the cross. Number two, start. Start. Start living in light of the accomplishments of the cross. Quit returning your attention to the days of old when you did this, that, or the other, but look forward into the future knowing that God has forgiven you of all your sins, past, present, and future. Number three, plan. Some of you are planners. Make it one of your life aims to go deeper, ever so deeper into the glories of Calvary. When we began, I challenged you to, to pray and helping to explore the depths and the riches of God's grace. That God would take us deeper into the glories of Calvary. Just remember, like my professor taught me over 90 years of age, it's never too late to learn more. Number four, run. Run to the cross every day. Find refuge in the shadow of the cross. Celebrate the wonder of the cross. Delight in the wonder of the cross. Number five, repent. Leave your sins at the foot of the cross. Thank God for his grace. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress when the lead character, Christian, in Bunyan's story, he had the weight of sin on his back and he came to the cross and what happened to his weight of sin? It's the best part of the whole book. It just fell off. It fell off. And he left his sin at the foot of the cross. May each of us do that as well. Number six, offer thanks. Offer thanks. Thank God for the cross. And finally, and we're going to do this as we close, worship. Cry out to God with a heart of worship. Thank Jesus for dying for you in particular. May the words of Romans chapter 5 verse 8 be forever etched on your heart, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what that does practically, it takes us back to Psalm chapter 42 and 43 because I trust that 100% of you are encouraged now, that you're, you're filled to the brim with encouragement. But you're going to go home and you're going to turn on the news. And then it's going to start all over again. You're going to hear about the next riot. You're going to hear about the next rebellion. You're going to hear about the next set of lies by a politician. You're going to hear all this bad news. But you need to remember to set your gaze on God, to do as the psalmist says, to hope in God, we don't hope in a political system. We don't hope in a political process. We don't hope in our government. These are all things that God has, has placed, and rightly so, in our country, in our culture, for good reason. But our hope is not in who wins the White House. Our hope is not in who ends up in Congress. Our hope is not, this one's hard for me to admit, who ends up in the Supreme Court. It's not. Our hope is in God and the gospel of his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. Uh, I know I need it as my attention is easily uh, distracted by things in the world as we talked about news and current events and things happening around us. Lord, help us to, to remember 
the beauty of the gospel to remember that Christ died for us. May we return often to this passage and remember these great lessons, all the the purposes of the cross and the accomplishments of the cross. And I pray that these, these great realities would, would marinate in our, our hearts and our minds and our souls and that we would revel and delight in these great truths and these great realities. Lord, these are not things that we catalog on a shelf and, and check our lists off. These are things that we need to delight in, in the inner man, in the inner woman, in the inner boy, in the inner girl. And it leads to worship. We want to do that right now. And so help us now to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.